Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. My name is Dr Training Wheels. Got a great show lined up and I can't wait to get into it. I'm joined in the studio this morning by Dr Moto who has had a few months off I think but he's back, he's here, he's in person, he's in real life and it's wonderful to have him here. He's been gallivanting around with some research and gone to all sorts of places actually so we're very grateful to have him in the studio with us this morning. We've also got two guests who'll be joining us from north of the Murray River actually. They're both joining us remotely from Sydney. So fingers crossed we don't have any technical issues. I'm very excited to speak to both of them. First of all, we have Dr Sandra Steele. She's a veterinary scientist by trade and an expert in One Health. She's a public health expert expert in One Health. And she'll be talking to us about how an Australian Centre for Disease Control might help promote the health of humans, animals and the environment in a holistic way. I'm very excited to hear from Dr Steele about that. Later in the hour, we have another guest. We have Karen Kasuma. She's a data analyst from the University of New South Wales, whose PhD is looking at using artificial intelligence to predict suicide risk. It's just, I can't even get my head around what that might look like. So I cannot wait to speak to Karen about that. So let's go listen to the doctor doctor and i think dr moto's got some news for us so we'll be back with you in a moment this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website at rrr.org.au Dr. Moto, how are you? Good morning, Training Wheels. Great to be back on the show. Um, you are right, I've taken a bit of a hiatus, but I have been motoring, scooting, motoring, mo- motoring, <laughs> in and out. I have uh, um, made um, um, cameo ex- uh, appearances here and there, but um, it's great to be back in the studio and it's great to be back on the show with you today. Oh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. I think you've got a bit of news for us, Dr. Moto, is that right? I do. I've got a couple of pieces of news, so um, just tell me to wind it up if, uh, if and when you see fit. Or draw it out. We'll see how we go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I thought I'd um, start uh, local. Um, uh, you know, we um, know that um, over this past week, in, in fact, over the last couple of days, I think there was an article in the um, Age just yesterday um, talking about um, our Premier Daniel Andrews has said that the era of COVID exceptionalism is over. Um, um, despite there being um, potential new waves, and there are new a couple of new um, Omicron subvariants appearing in North America, and it's probably a matter of time um, before um, it spreads um, across the globe. And we are probably not um, immune to the spread of the um, subvariant. But nonetheless, you know, we know that the um, subvariants. Um, appears to be um, less virulent and so that i.e it's less likely to make people as sick as the original variants particularly like the delta variant and um, you know a large proportion of our population are also vaccinated so um, i thought i'd um, use that as a segue to talk about an interesting paper that um, was published in um, the lancet psychiatry um, just this month um, 
and um, it's a it's a UK study uh, looking at um, about 230, 240,000 um, patients' records and trying to determine what are exactly the risks of developing neurological or psychiatric complications in the six months after um, people have um, contracted um, um, the COVID disease. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's an important article and it's timely because, you know, we know that this big data gives us more generalizability, i.e. the study's findings might um, be more applicable to the population. You know, if you have a study with like two people, um, there is every risk that that might apply to the greater population. Um, so um, this study, um, what they did was they looked um, through health records of two, about 240, just shy of 240,000 people. It's enormous. Absolutely. And they um, looked at people who have contracted COVID um, versus people who have contracted influenza versus people who have contracted another respiratory mm. condition. Um, and they were all what we call demographic and age and health condition matched. So they would match the um, person who, uh, for example, one of the people with COVID might be a uh, um, Caucasian male in his 50s and they would match um, uh, um, a couple of people in the other two arms um, um, with the other two cohorts depending on um, whether those um, some of those um, demographic variables match. So everyone's matched. comparable. Yeah, so mm-hmm. people are comparable. Anyway, long story short, um, it did show that um, if you have contracted um, the COVID disease, you are at a... Uh, slightly increased rate of risk of developing um, other neurological and psychiatric issues. Um, And just for the, you know, sort of um, nitty gritty sort of uh, stats nerds out there, um, the hazard ratio was 1.4. What that means is you're 1.4 times more likely to have some neurological or psychiatric um, condition in the six months after contracting COVID um, than if you had another respiratory condition or influenza. So the the risk is there. It's not supremely high. Um, so I just want to uh, reassure the listeners that, you know, it's, it's not sort of panic stations. Um, it's not like you have a double or triple or tenfold increase um, over, you know, contracting another form of flu. Um it's um, effectively sort of 40, yeah, about 41.4 times. So, you know, slightly higher. Um, and the moral of that story is um, make sure that you look after your health. You look after your all general aspects of your physical and mental health. Um, make sure you um, get boosted. Make sure you get boosted, boosted, boosted. And, <laughs> you know, the more we can keep um, ourselves vaccinated and the population vaccinated, it's it significantly and dramatically mitigates um, the risk of developing a serious COVID disease um, or a serious influenza disease in the case of influenza vaccinations. Um, And that also mitigates subsequent sequelae or subsequent complications. So because one of the um, study findings was that um, people who got very sick with COVID, they were more likely to have subsequent neurological or psychiatric problems afterwards. Did they specify what sort of neurological or psychiatric problems these people had? Yes, there was a, there was a, a long list of various. Um, so um, things like um, having a stroke, having an intracranial hemorrhage, um, having some other um, neuromuscular disease, um, such as a condition called Guillain-Barré syndrome, which mm. is where your nerves... Um, and um, your your nerves innervating your muscles sort of um, go a little bit 
um, haywire and they don't fire as well. So Beautiful are... pronunciation there, Dr. Moto. Very, oh. very romantic. <laughs> Thank you. Merci. Thank you. Um, so um, there, there are a bunch of neurological conditions, but um, the psychiatric um, conditions are things like, you know, psychotic disorders, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, insomnia was one of mm. them as well. So there's a long list of various neurological as well as psychiatric conditions. Um, and it was just the risk of developing any of those conditions altogether was the hazard ratio was 1.4. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. I mean, the paper goes through and breaks everything down, mm. of course, as you'd mm. expect. Um, but the overall hazard ratio was that. Yeah, okay. So that's interesting because we've sort of – I feel like there's a bit of um, uh, talk in the media about, you know, the COVID brain fog and, um, the you know, the cognitive effects of it. It's nice to have some sort of nitty-gritty data actually backing that up, but, but it's also not the worst news we've heard about COVID in the last two and a half years. You know, it's – your risk is increased, but it's not a disaster. Yes, I think, I mean, objectively, no, I, I agree with you. I think objectively, um, having the statistically derived data-driven evidence is crucially important because then we know what we're dealing with. And I think the other really helpful take-home message from this study is that it very clearly found that, like I said, people who got sick with the COVID disease, they were more likely to go on to develop other problems, psychiatric or neurological. And we are very clear, we know very well that um, the, um, the, the, the most effective way of um, minimising um, uh, developing a very severe COVID disease is through um, immunisation, vaccination, as well as good general health. Yep. Yep. Oh, thank you for that. Dr. So there's Mogo. a solution. Yeah. Nice. Basically, which is what's the good, which is what I think is the great good news. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. We'll just keep getting boosted and boosted and boosted. Um, I think you have another news item. Is that right? Yes. Can let's, we go into that a little bit? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, let's do okay. it. Okay. Well, why not? Um, <laughs> so this one is a little bit uh, uh, contentious, but um, nothing like a bit of controversy on a Sunday That's morning. That's right. That's what makes radiotherapy worth tuning into, I think. Absolutely, 100%. You know, we're not just here to, you know, talk about, well, I was going to say the weather, but then the, the weather itself has been very controversial. It has, that's of course, true. been um, very tempestuous recently, mm -hmm. hasn't it? Um, well, actually, um, so I wanted to um, talk about this viewpoint that was um, published in JAMA Psychiatry um, just a couple of weeks ago, and it was the title of the viewpoint that really caught my attention. So the title went, Preparing for the bursting of the psychedelic hype bubble. Um, and just to give the listeners a little bit of context, so um, JAMA Psychiatry is um, a very, very um, high impact, a highly reputable um, journal in the field of neuroscience, as was um, Lancet Psychiatry, um, coincidentally. Both are probably among the sort of top five of high impact journals in psychiatry and neuroscience. Um, Coming back to JAMA Psychiatry, so it was a viewpoint um, put forward by um, experts at the um, Johns Hopkins University in um, Baltimore, Maryland, and they are basically just cautioning people about um, the perhaps um, premature overzealous enthusiasm about um, psychedelic research and their potential findings. Um, as, as we know, you know, with um, psychedelics, probably the main compound that is attracting a lot of research attention is a compound called psilocybin, which is a 
um, constituent of your um, magic mushroom. What do you mean, my magic mushrooms? <laughs> yes, what I know. I was, I was looking at um, training wheels very <laughs> intently when I said your magic <laughs> mushrooms. But uh, so. Um, um, it, so this this compound that's um, contained in um, magic mushrooms um, um, can uh, make um, people have um, uh, euphoric um, and amongst other experiences. From a pharmacological perspective, the most sort of commonly accepted mechanism of its action in things like depression and um, anxiety is that it's got effects on your serotonin um, system. Um, and we think that might then play a part in treating depression and anxiety. Um, without going down that rabbit warren, um, you know, we, we um, many listeners will probably know that um, their uh, people's perspectives about um, psychedelics have changed quite a lot. You know, from the '60s to the 2000s, it was all negative. It was all, you know, this will, you know, take you on a bad trip and you'll never come back from it, and your brain will be permanently, potentially damaged from it, etc. Um, and um, from maybe the mid 2000s, um, people have started acknowledging their potential um, positive effects. Um, the view, the viewpoint article was more just um, talking fairly in a fairly balanced manner that um, there are some super enthusiasts um, who um, might be underplaying their potential risks and they might be getting a bit ahead of themselves because the research and the clinical trials in this area are just starting to um, get done and they're just starting and the sort of half a dozen or so trials with robust myth, um, scientific methodology, they are small in numbers, um, and some have been positive, some have been negative. Um, there was a um, pretty seminal um, study uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, last year where um, people were randomised or randomly allocated to receive either psilocybin or um, escitalopram, which is a commonly used... Um, antidepressant and found that there was no statistically significant difference between the two, mm. um, which, you know, goes to say that psilocybin was effective, but it wasn't any better than treatments as usual. Mm. Um, anyway, quickly winding that up, um, you know, the I think more research and clinical trials um, with good design needs to be done was what they were arguing for. And that's sort of part of the trouble, isn't it, that it's difficult to get funding for a lot of the research into psychedelics because there's still this kind of stigma about, oh, yeah, people just going to have a, a funky time is there actually sort of a clinical basis for this and, and there's sort of that that hurdle to research further is that right well see here's the thing and i said this will be a controversial sunday morning discussion um psychedelic research has actually received um to, to date billions of dollars of investment and um and startups and um philanthropic funding, government funding, um, as well as in um, drug company investment. So that so flipping to the um, mm. other aspect of what the viewpoint was discussing was that, you know, there are some inherent um, potential vested interests, mm. let's say, um, just for people to be a little bit cautious about. And this field is moving very, very quickly and there is a lot of enthusiasm and it was just a, a, a brief but also balanced article just to um, 
encourage people to just um, keep their heads level, mm. which I thought was um, timely to talk about. Yeah, it is. That's nice. And I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where um, historically these these psychedelics were sort of demonised and then there's been this excitement in the last sort of decade or two and the truth is probably somewhere in between that there are risks, there are benefits, let's not get too excited either way and conduct the research. Thank you, Dr. Modo. A pleasure as always. Beautiful news, wonderful stuff. Oh, yeah, Dr. Modo's only, put his hand he up. Only, probably only said it's beautiful news because, A, it stopped raining and, um, B, it's because of the effects of the um, mushrooms that we um, had this morning. In the <laughs> beautiful news, <If> indeed. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are joined by Dr. Sandra Steele, who's joining us remotely from Sydney this morning. Dr. Sandra Steele is a veterinarian by trade and also a public health expert. And Dr. Steele has special expertise in One Health, which is, we'll we'll ask her to explain it because I'm sure she'll do a better job than me, but in brief, it's how the health of humans, animals and the environment all interact and complement each other. Dr. Steele is a lecturer in vet sciences and One Health at the University of Melbourne, and she's been looking at how the COVID pandemic has highlighted the need for an all-encompassing approach to human, animal and environmental health, and how a Centre for Disease Control might help make that all happen. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's fine. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. How is it? Is it drying up a bit up there or is it still very wet? Oh, we've got a beautiful sunny day today. We're oh. sort of feeling feeling your pain in Melbourne because <laughs> that's we've what got a, you're experiencing has been the last sort of we've got year. a beautiful We've got a beautiful day today as well. So it's okay. Yeah. We're on the same oh, page. <laughs> Dr. Steele, could you tell us, before we sort of get deeper into things, could you give us a a bit of an overview? Because I think One Health is a concept that that some people are familiar with, but it's it's still new for a lot of people. Could you tell us what what is One Health? Yeah. So, look, it it is a a reasonably new, not a new concept. It's something that historically a lot of people have realised for a long time, that there is this sort of interrelationship between the health of humans, animals and the environment. But I think the formation or the sort of the acknowledgement of this one health paradigm has been more in sort of the, the first naming of it was in the early 2000s. And it's like anything, there's been a few ups and downs, but the COVID has definitely raised awareness um, of the need for us to think about health in a more holistic way. So we can think about... So COVID on one level is a good example, but not as clear as example of One Health as you'd like. But, but it's a good example in that you're thinking about disease emergence and everybody has heard like there is a bit of controversy about what happened but I think the most accepted thing is that COVID was a spillover event from wildlife Um, it's um, hypothesized it's from bats um, because these SARS coronaviruses are are common in bats in the area where COVID was first found and the thought is that it's spilled into an intermediary species and then into humans and the question is, why does this happen then? Well, it's because with 
we've sort of putting a lot of pressure on animals. We've changed how we use land. We've increased urbanisation. There's been huge growth in in cities and demand for food and the demands of our societies. And therefore, we put a lot of pressure on animal species. And that's what... And so we're increasing how much contact we have with these animal species. And thinking about bats in particular, we've destroyed so, so much of their environment. We're then interfacing with them and they're interfacing with other domestic animals in a much more much closer way than they used to previously. And that therefore increases the risk of these spillover events. Yeah, nothing which quite, are not new. Nothing yeah. quite illustrates the sort of vulnerability and interconnectedness of human health than a than a a, a virus that comes from an animal um, yeah. And, yeah. and spills over and then exactly. you know, in the case of COVID causes a enormous yeah. worldwide yeah. pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and look, the thing is, though, they're not spillover events aren't new. They've historically, like way, way back in history, there's plenty of examples of viruses or bacteria spilling from humans into animals. So, so it's more seems to be more often viruses, but but things like well, so one of my favourite examples is is rinderpest, which is a morbili virus, which was in cattle, which spilled over into people, became measles in people, and then that then spilled over into dogs and became canine distemper virus. Hmm. So they're all morbiliviruses, but they've gone sort of in various variants from species to species. Now, I'm not a virologist and can't speak authoritatively about that, but I just think that's a really classic example. So it's not also, a, it's not all about sort of a one-way street between animals and humans. Humans can also sort of share the love, so to speak, and they've done that a bit in COVID as well because there's been a, been a bit of sharing back to animal species. Isn't that kind of us? Yeah. <laughs> What were your thoughts when when COVID started, um, you know, all those years ago in the time before? Yeah. With your background, can you remember what you what your first thoughts were, and 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 did you sort of start to think about it from a One Health perspective right at the beginning? Oh yeah. Well, I was bizarrely I was in the middle of my PhD, so I was had this sort of one of those midlife crises, and I'd worked as a veterinary clinician for many years in companion animal practice predominantly, went back and did a public health degree and then got persuaded that doing a PhD was a good idea. And we came up with this whole concept because there was concern about the capacity of front level, frontline practitioners, that is veterinarians and GPs, what would they do if they were confronted with an unusual disease event? Like, do they have the capacity to deal with that? And that doesn't mean that they're going to know all about that particular disease if it's a newer disease event, but it means do they have the skills and the knowledge to think, well, what, what is a good way to approach this and what strategies do I need to use? So that's probably a really basic way of looking at it. So so we, I'd started this PhD in 2016 and was halfway through it when COVID hit. So there was some sort of weirdness. Beautiful like, It was quite surreal, to be honest, that, that we're talking about disease X, which um, like was this hypothetical unknown disease that the World Health Organization had anticipated. Um, and there we were living disease X <laughs> in the middle of my PhD, which was just phenomenally surreal. So, yeah, I wasn't surprised. Um, 
I think happening in the middle of my PhD was probably a surprise. But anyway, <laughs> but look, as a veterinarian, when we found out it was coronavirus, I must in the profession, there was a bit of, oh, my gosh, in that there's a really evil coronavirus called feline infectious peritonitis in cats. And, and I think vets were concerned that it was going to be bad mm. or vets that I, veterinary epidemiologists and a lot of small animal vets thought, gee, because coronaviruses can be quite benign in that a lot of our normal respiratory common cold viruses are actually coronaviruses. But there are some coronaviruses that do some quite nasty things and including feline infectious peritonitis. And um, so I think there was a degree of trepidation about what might happen because we knew that coronaviruses can have be more vascular than a respiratory virus, which is what's been what's come to pass, isn't it? So that yes. as your previous guest was talking about, it's not just a it's not a respiratory virus. It's actually a virus that can do weird things, like can cause vasculitis and can actually have multi-systemic problems. That's so, right. so yeah, so the whole sort of wet market scenario, a lot of wildlife interfacing with domestic animals, interfacing with humans, like it's just a, a little um, little petri dish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so. literal breeding ground. How? Yeah. What? Tell us about the the Centre for Disease Control. And there's been talk of of developing an Australian one and how it might help in future. Yeah. T- tell us your thoughts about that. Right. Look, why? I really see this as an opportunity. And this this um this paper that we've just published in the MJA is basically my thesis discussion. <laughs> which we sort of made a bit prettier and <laughs> did much prettier diagrams than in my thesis discussion because one of my co-authors is much better at that than me. Um, so we just see this as an opportunity. So so what, what does a CDC do? I think that's what we've got to think about. Let's go back to basics. What's the aim of the CDC? And in the stated aim on the website that is on the Department of Health website at the moment is that we, the remit of the CDC is to ensure ongoing pandemic preparedness, lead the federal response to future infectious disease outbreaks and work to prevent non-communicable and communicable diseases. So from thinking about that, if we're thinking about health in a holistic way or a one health sort of way, it, I think... We, we've got this opportunity to, if we're going to set up a national CDC, to make it a body that achieves these aims in a really optimal way. And my, being a One Health practitioner and a One Health researcher, I perceive if we're talking about disease preparedness and trying to prevent disease, well, we need to think about it in that holistic One Health way. We need to involve not just health professionals, but we need to involve like animal health professionals, environmental health professionals, but also there are other disciplines that do, are involved in that whole thinking about um, how do we manage disease? How do we plan for disease? So that's going to then link into, well, how do we fund research? How do we um, what happens to the economy when we have a disease outbreak and the implications of that when we're trying to to manage um, 
what happens to society when we have public health orders. So, so, that, so that then brings in social scientists, doesn't it? So it's, it's a little bit more than we tend to talk about it as human, animal and environmental health, and that's probably at the core of it, but, but it is a lot. One health is a lot broader than that. I think if we then form an Australian CDC and it becomes a predominantly human health body, I think we this is an opportunity that we're missing to have a really bespoke, high-value organisation that is going to meet, meet these needs. So during this consultation process, which is what is happening at the moment, um, we've been advocating and other people have been advocating basically that we think about, well, how are we going to design? How, how, how should we run this particular body? And we need to talk about that obviously locally based on our resources, but we also need to look at other similar bodies overseas and look at the pros and cons of various approaches they've taken. So, so and there's CDCs all around the world. It's not a new concept, so or it's not a unique thing like there's the American one, but there's also one in China, there's one in Europe, there's one in Africa, there's other ones in other nations. So lots of examples that we can go in and we've got to design it within the context of what our health needs are and our need, what we need to do to actually have good preparedness for the next pandemic. Absolutely. Thank you so much, yes. Dr Steele. I think Dr Moto's got a question for you. And it's very nice to meet you, Dr. Steele, and very interesting um, uh, uh, concept. And um, I suppose I have a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, the the various um, CDCs that exist around the world, are they all pretty similar in terms of their remit and what they do, or are there some differences? Um, and I would imagine... Um, you know, there would be, uh, you know, there'd be a, a fair investment of resources and personnel to start our own CDC. Um, you know, how much scope do you think there would be to um, share some of these resources and form sort of a bit more kind of a um, international consortium, or is it better to just keep things in house? Right. Um, look, they. As far as around the world, most of the CDCs have a similar remit and their remit is quite similar to what's on our website. And so, for example, you look at US CDC, it says that it's a science-based data-driven service organisation that protects the public's health. And, and the African CDC, supporting public health initiatives of member states to strengthen their capacity of public health institutions to detect, prevent, control and respond effectively to disease threats. So it's all about preserving human health and maximising human health. But if you're thinking, as I said, within the context of One Health, that means to optimise human health, we need to also optimise the health of animals and the environment because we know that you upset the balance in one you've got unhealthy animals, you've got unhealthy people. And it's not just in the context. Also, it's not just, I want to emphasise, not just in the context of emerging infectious diseases, it's also in the context of things like antimicrobial resistance, it's in the concept of food security, like have we got a safe and a food supply that equitably supplies adequate nutrition to all people? Um, so as far as, like, 
and joining forces, I think that's a bigger picture. So this is more about, well, what are we doing in Australia? Um, because the systems we've got in Australia work pretty well and there are these sort of, there are interlinkages between human and animal health, but a lot of them, it, the way things are structured, we're structured in silos, we're structured in, we have the health department, we have the Department of Agriculture, then we have the equivalent state bodies. We don't actually have a body where everybody gets together and works together all the time. And so when you're in a well situation or a, we often talk about peacetime, which I don't know if it's a great terminology. So when things are going well, we don't have COVID, we don't have anything bad happening. It's okay, like everybody can work in their own little boxes, but it's when a crisis happens, you don't want a bunch of people coming together that aren't familiar with working with each other. So you think about, you know, sort of smaller, smaller sort of things. So say you look at, say, transplant teams in hospitals. So they don't just rope in some random theatre nurse to come and assist them in a liver transplant. They actually have a team that is used to working together, that knows what each other are doing and also knows what the skills and strengths and also the weaknesses of each member of that team is and how that team complements each other. So on a bigger scale, thinking about One Health, that's what we need. We need our human health people, our animal health people, environmental health people to actually have an organisation where they work together so that they can build those relationships because One Health is really a very relationship-based way of thinking and working because if you don't understand... If I don't understand what skills my health colleagues have or my environmental health colleagues have and I don't know how that works in with what my skill set is, well, how in a crisis am I going to work with them effectively? Yes, like so we, we need, something we need together. plenty of cooks. And that's cooks. what happened in COVID. We cobbled it together, didn't we? And we had a pretty good outcome for Australia. But, but is that good luck or good management? So you're yeah, saying we need plenty out. of cooks in the kitchen um, to prepare a magnificent yeah. feast and hopefully not to spoil the broth. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a that's a really yeah, good note yeah. to, to end on. We're, we're, run, we're running yeah. out of time and it's been so yeah. lovely having you on the show this morning, Dr. Steele. Thank you so much. I love, I love the idea of different health professionals working together and, um, and you know, the, the opportunities that have come out of the COVID pandemic is such a, a, a positive spin on things and a nice thing to reflect on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We have another guest joining us. We've got Karen Kusuma joining us on Zoom from Sydney. Karen is a data analyst from UNSW and alongside the Black Dog Institute and the Centre for Big Data Research in Health, Karen is looking at how we might be able to better predict suicide risk. I'm... Let's just talk about it. This is so... I read the little media release and I thought, that's fascinating. Karen, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. 
tell us about your research. So, so we know that suicide is a big problem and, and it's difficult to predict who... We've got a psychiatrist in the room. We're very lucky to have Dr Modo, so he can give us a clinical um, side of things. T- tell, us about, tell us about what you're doing. Okay, so um, the media release was about the first study of my PhD, so I'm currently undertaking a PhD in psychiatry, so focusing on how artificial intelligence could improve suicide risk detection. Um, That specific study was um, meta-analysis, so it's uh, in layman terms, it's basically aggregating all of the evidence base on machine learning in suicidology, and we found that um, there's quite a good but preliminary kind of evidence that machine learning could potentially change the future of suicide risk detection. So um, basically what I did was I um, located 56 studies that were relevant. So it's quite a new field. And um, the 80% of the studies that we found were published in the last five years. So there is an increasing amount of interest in using artificial intelligence to improve suicide risk detection. So from the 56 models, we found that... um, Machine learning models so far could predict um, um, suicide risk with 66% sensitivity, which means that 66% of the people who are at risk of suicidal outcomes are detected by the machine learning models and an 87% specificity, which is... um, which means that 87% of the people who did not have suicidal outcomes would be picked up by the machine learning models. Dr. Moto, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to buddy in Dr. Moto, how does that compare okay. to what we, how we assess suicide risk clinically at the moment, not using machine learning, the sort of regular way, how do we do it and how good is it? That is very impressive. I'm impressed by two things. I'll address the um, first one first, which is your question on training wheels. Um, I mean, it's been fairly well documented that the clinical assessment of um, who might go on to um, experience worsening um, suicidal thinking and might even act on those thoughts, it's a pretty blunt instrument. You know, we're not very good at doing it and that's fairly well publicised and and studied. So it's impressive that um, people are thinking outside the box and using more statistical and advanced statistical methods such as machine learning algorithms to try to um, do this a bit better, as you say, it's a very crucial field. But um, the the second um, thing that I'm impressed by, and um, this is a um, a, a point of clarification for Karen, is um, you're telling me that there have been, you know, when you were doing your scouring of the scientific literature base, um, you found 56 studies that applied machine learning to predict suicide risk. Um, is that is that correct? Um, yeah, so actually it's more than 56 because we applied a criteria of um, perspective prediction, which means that yep. the um, the suicide outcomes have to be after the data was collected. So it means it literally predicted the future. Whether it did that with the right rigor is another question. But there are a lot of other studies which do cross-sectional kind of predictions. So mm. yeah, there, there it is. It is exploding, I'd say, the field. Yeah, because you also said that it's a fairly new field. But yeah. um, if there have been 56 of these studies that have um, met your fairly rigid criteria for 
um, pulled synthesis and statistical analysis, as you said, you know, as part of the meta-analysis that um, you did, that's that's impressive. That's actually quite a lot of studies. And it's um, I'd be fascinated to hear what more you have to share with us and your findings. What sort, um, of, what sort of data are they analysing to yeah. predict someone's suicide risk? That's a really good question. So uh, when the field started out, and it still is leaning more along that way, it tends to use electronic healthcare records. So uh, basically, all the you know the structured data that you get in a hospital, mm. or you know if someone is admitted for suicide related issues or mental health issues, then we uh, then they call it that data is collected. But interestingly, as the field evolves, um, they're starting to look at alternative media or alternative data sources, which I'm really interested in as well. So um, so survey data is a big one. So, And that's really important for understanding someone's effect because you don't tend to get that in a, in a hospital record. Like someone's, um, you know, um, let's say their thoughts about the world and themselves and their current situation. I think that's quite important to look at, particularly with younger people who are at risk of suicide. And um, there's also social media, which is a very exciting kind of um, sort of um, avenue of research because social media obviously has, you know, a lot of time you know, uh, a lot of time points within the data set. So you get to see um, how someone's trajectory, let's say, evolves over time. And uh, there's also um, a bunch of like natural language processing models around clinician notes. So free text notes, which is interesting. It's not doing great at the moment from what I can see, but it might get better, which would be exciting. And there's a new sort of new kind of, thing called ecologically uh, ecological momentary assessments which is basically like surveys but you do it throughout the day or th- throughout the week so you get to see how suicide risk might fluctuate which it tends to be because they're starting to conceptualize it as not a trait but you know something that uh, is a state that fluctuates over time that is so interesting that a lot of the data is using information in the electronic health record because to me that means we actually already have the information we already have the information about who is at risk or or, you know more at risk or who is more likely to to die by suicide but we're not using it in the right way whereas your your work is I suppose tell me if I'm wrong because I I don't know anything about data and stats um you're you're using it in a different way that's actually giving us the answer that we want is that right Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, a lot of the field is already leveraging existing data sources. So things like data linkage and, um, you know, social media, obviously, it's also out there. So um, it's about fine tuning the models and, you know, trying to see if they could really predict suicide risk in real life scenarios rather than within the data set itself. So I think there is a lot of potential. And the thing about this kind of research is that there's no need to really collect new data because of how much we have already, particularly with electronic health record and my health record, that's that's such a rich data source. So um, there is a lot of potential. Um, in my PhD, I'm looking at surveys that have already been collected by the Australian government and then they are linking they have already linked that with PBS data, MBS data and um, NAPLAN data. So there are a lot of data sources out there. It's a matter of how do we best leverage it in in improving suicide risk detection. Did you say NAPLAN data? Yeah. What? That is 
is wild. <laughs> so now kind of those tests that kids do in prep grade three, grade five, something like that. I can't remember exactly when they do them. But every few years, almost every student in Australia performs these tests and they're used to, um, to measure how schools are performing and where funding should be allocated. But you're saying that data from those tests might be usable to help determine someone's suicide risk. Well, currently I have a data source that, you know, has them linked. So I don't have it for every Australian child and um, that I just have that within the 3,000 or so kids. So that might be an avenue. Um, there is some literature out there showing that, you know, grades are associated with suicide risk later on, but whether or not that will come true is another thing because I'm still working on developing the models, but that is something very exciting to look at. So I suppose what you're looking at is sort of quite enormous amounts of data. And it, as, as we said before, it's a lot of data that we already have, but putting it together in a certain way to sort of try and spit out individuals that might be at risk. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, exactly. This is very technical stuff. So I'm just hoping that listeners, you know, are sort of because I'm certainly it's over my head. So I, I hope we're kind of everyone's keeping up here. Dr. Moto, do you have any other questions or thoughts? This is fascinating. It is fascinating. And um, perhaps Karen also, would you mind also just explaining um, to uh, the dinosaurs um, such as myself, uh, um, what machine learning actually does? Um, so machine learning is um, basically a bunch of different approaches that you use and like sort of mathematical models. So um, it comes within the huge umbrella of artificial intelligence. Basically what, um, what they've been doing in this field is getting a bunch of data. So um, the models are trained on this data and then to, to assess how they really perform in new data, they, they test it on new data, and that's how we get these performance estimates. So um, the advantage that machine learning has is that, you know, because suicide, as you would know, is something incredibly complex to, to sort of understand and predict, and they are, and machine learning models are capable of taking in, you know, thousands and thousands of different variables, you know, and mathematically, you know, ranking which are the most important ones to look at and then sort of learning from the data that they've given and then spit out new predictions and new ones. So um, in a way, um, I think, you know, there, there might be, you know, less bias and there's more standardization in the way machine learning can be applied compared to like clinical risk assessment. So I think that's very exciting as well. It absolutely is. Karen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's absolutely fascinating work and thank you for doing it. Hugely important. Obviously, we've been talking about some sensitive issues this morning. So if anything we've talked about has brought up troubling thoughts for you, remember Lifeline are always available on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. What a wonderful morning it's been. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Radiotherapy. Remember, we do have a podcast. You can reach us on demand if you want to listen back. Dr. Moto, it's been lovely to see you in person. We've had wonderful guests, Karen Kasuma and Dr. Sharon Steele. I've had a wonderful time. I hope you have too. I hope you get to enjoy the sunshine and we'll see you next week. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.